That is such a great song. I know many of you have heard that played on KTIS too, but I love the words of that song uh, because it often is through those difficult times in life that we learn the most about God and see Him at work in our life. Well, this morning we're going to be in Matthew chapter 17. I'd invite you to turn there. Uh, We are continuing in our series called Fearless. This is actually the last week, though, of the six-week study that we've been doing in our ABFs as well as in the worship service. And today we're going to be talking about the fear of God getting out of my box. Now, I mentioned we've covered uh, six topics. If you are interested in looking at more, in Max Lucado's book, he has uh, 13 different chapters. So there's a whole lot of other areas that he also addresses in terms of fears that we have. And if you're interested in reading that, I'd encourage you to get the book. But let me read this passage of Scripture for us, and then we'll begin. Matthew 17, verses 1 to 13. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah, talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, It is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said, don't be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, Why then did the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. And then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this passage this morning, I mean, it is so familiar to us. We have heard it, we have read it, we have probably even studied it. But Lord, I pray that today we might hear it again as though for the first time. That we would stand like the disciples in awe of who Jesus is. And that we would bow down in worship. That we would choose to live our lives fully committed to Him. So open our eyes to see Your truth this morning. And help us to hear what You want to say to us. In Jesus' name, Amen. Have you ever been afraid that God was going to ask you to do something that you didn't want to do? I think all of us probably can relate to that. There are probably times when we've been a little bit worried about what God maybe was going to ask us to do. But that is particularly true for those who are often considering the claims of Jesus Christ. In fact, there are many people who have been hesitant to surrender their life to Christ because of that fear. 
when Gail and I worked in a campus ministry for a number of years with Campus Crusade for Christ, you know, we'd sit down and talk with college students, and one of their biggest fears was the fear that God was going to ask them to give up some of their sinful behavior. And that is uh, uh, something that we can expect. If we have things in our life that are displeasing to the Lord, He is going to ask us to give those things up. Drunkenness, immorality, rebellion, anger, lust, pride, greed, all of those and many more, God asks us to confess to Him as sin and put those behind us to repent of them and to turn to Christ. But a second fear that people often have too is this fear that, you know, if I surrender my life to Christ, I'm not going to have any fun anymore and life's going to be really boring. You know, I can tell you that is a lie of the enemy. When I think about my own life, I have had more joy as a Christian than I had before I was walking with God. And the thing about joy in the Lord is that the next day you can feel good about it too. There's no guilt. There's no shame in that. There's no remorse or regret about what you've done. There is pure joy when you walk with the Lord and you experience His blessings in life. Sometimes people have a fear that God might change my plans. Well, I can tell you that He will, but His plan is perfect for you. It doesn't mean that it's always going to be easy and it's not always safe, but it is the best by far. In Romans 12, 1 and 2, the Scripture says that when we surrender our life to Christ as a living sacrifice, that He will make known to us His good and His pleasing and His perfect will for our life. And you can't get much better than that. than in giving our life to Him and finding out what His perfect will is. But sadly, there are even times when we as Christians can struggle with surrendering control of our life to Christ. There are people who are hesitant because uh, they fear that he might call me to be a missionary or into some kind of full-time service. Some people are afraid that he's going to send us to or send me to a country or area where I don't want to live. Or maybe he's going to ask me to forgive someone or love someone who I don't think is very lovely or that I should forgive. And we can erect those kind of barriers in our own life and not want to do God's will when He calls us to. And it is really irrational on our part. We have these fears that show that we don't really trust God yet or that we don't believe that His Word is true and His way is best. Satan comes along just like he did with Eve and wants us to doubt the truthfulness and the goodness of God's Word. And so the result is that we try to control God or limit Him. You know, when I wrote that down, I was thinking how ludicrous that seems that we would even think we could control God or limit Him by our actions. But we try to keep God in a box. We want to give God a part of our life, but not the whole, for fear of what He may do. Wilbur Rees put it like this many years ago when he said, I would like to buy $3 worth of God. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of him to make me love a black man or pick beets with a migrant. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, not the new birth. 
I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Well, Donald Carson, who teaches at Trinity, took that and rewrote it in a little more contemporary way, and he put it like this. He said, I'd like to buy about $3 worth of the gospel, please. Not too much, just enough to make me happy, but not so much that I get addicted. I don't want so much gospel that I learn to really hate covetousness and lust. I certainly don't want so much that I start to love my enemies and cherish self-denial and contemplate missionary service in some alien culture. I want ecstasy, not repentance. I want transcendence, not transformation. I would like to be cherished by some nice, forgiving, broad-minded people, but I myself don't want to love those that are different from me. I would like enough gospel to make my family secure and my children well-behaved, but not so much that I find my ambitions redirected or my giving too greatly enlarged. I would like about $3 worth of gospel, please. But that's not what God wants to give us. He wants to give us so much more. And when we come to Jesus in a passage such as the one we're going to look at today, we find that Jesus can't be put in a box. He blows away all our misconceptions. He blows away our ideas of what God should be like or what He should do in our life. He is much greater, much more awesome, much more terrifying even. He offers us so much more than what the world can. In John 10.10, Jesus said that the thief, that is Satan, comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I came that they, that is that you and me, may have life and have it to the full, abundantly. Jesus wants to give you and me abundant life when we come to him. He tells us the one that we should fear following is Satan, is the world, and going along with the crowd or what everyone else may seem to be doing, and instead learn to follow him. Because the only way to find real hope, real peace, real joy, is by surrendering our life to Him. That's what we're going to look at today. You know, in this passage, in uh, Matthew 17, that talks about the transfiguration, it really is about Jesus and about His identity. And so I'm going to make three very simple yet profound statements about who Jesus is. And I hope that the familiarity of it doesn't take away from it and that you will catch the power in these words. Number one, Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Son of God. When we use that title for Jesus, Son of God, though I want to make this statement that it doesn't mean that He is less than God. He is God. Sometimes people here who aren't familiar with that term think is that kind of a lesser State for Jesus? No, not at all. It's just a statement that He is the second person of the Trinity. We have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But Jesus is fully divine. All the fullness of the Godhead dwells in Him. And that was a lesson that the disciples needed to learn. I want to go back to chapter 16 and put this in context. If you have your Bibles open, you can go back to... um, Chapter 16, verse 13. And Jesus took his disciples up to the region of Caesarea Philippi. 
Now that's about as far north as you can get in Israel and still be in the country of Israel. And he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they reply that some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. A lot of talk was out there in the crowds among the people about who Jesus is, and they were all speculating. But Jesus asked the disciples, what about you? Who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you but by man, but by my Father in heaven. And so here, Peter, who's this spokesperson for the group, hears this uh, question that Jesus asks, and he steps up to the plate, you know, and he answers, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus is thrilled with that response. Peter got it. And you can kind of imagine Peter at that time, you know, if it was like in our day today, he'd probably be doing high fives with all the other disciples. You know, he got this right. He recognized who Jesus is as the Son of God. It had been revealed to him by God the Father. But then a little bit later in that passage, Jesus begins to talk about his death. He talks about what's going to happen when he goes to Jerusalem. That he's going to suffer at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And Jesus tells them that he's going to be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And Peter can't understand it at all. And so here, Peter rebukes him. He rebukes Jesus and says, You know, never, Lord, never shall that happen to you. And Jesus turns and he rebukes Peter. And he says, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, and you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. And so here, in just a few short verses, in just a very short time, Peter's gone from getting this absolutely right, you know, high fives and excited about it, to now thinking he's got this figured out, and he has no place for a suffering Messiah in his theology. Jesus can't die. How can that be? There is more to learn about Jesus as he will see. That's the setting for this passage. Matthew makes the note that it was six days later then that Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John. Just the three of the disciples who were closest to Jesus in that inner circle would go with him up on the mountain. Which mountain it was, we are not 100% sure. The traditional site is Mount Tabor near the Sea of Galilee, but most today believe that this probably took place on Mount Hermon. Caesarea Philippi is at the base of Mount Hermon, this large mountain. Mount Tabor is only about 1,900 feet tall, whereas Mount Hermon is over 9,000 feet tall. It is snow-covered at the summit, and they probably did not go up that far, but went up on this mountain to a remote spot where Jesus was transfigured before them. Can you imagine what the disciples saw at that point. What does it mean that he was transfigured? Well, the word that's used there, metamorphosis, is the same word that's used in Romans 12, 2 concerning us, how we are to be transformed 
by the power of God. We are to be changed. Well, with Jesus, He was transfigured before them. He was changed so that His glory, which had been veiled by His human flesh, now shone through. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as light. And the disciples were stunned. I mean, this, this was not a reflected glory. This isn't like when Moses went up on the mountain to get the Ten Commandments and met with God, and his face shone with a reflected glory from the Father. This was an intrinsic glory. This is who Jesus really is in his flesh. His humanity veiled that glory, and now it was shining through. And the disciples were amazed. John would write in his Gospel later, in John 1.18, he said that no one has ever seen God, but God the one and only who is at the Father's side has made Him known. What did John mean by that? Sometimes Jehovah Witnesses will take that verse or other cults and they'll want to say, see, there it is, they're making a statement that Jesus is not God. No, that's the opposite of what John was saying there. John is making a statement that no one has ever seen God, God the Father, in all of His fullness and glory. We could not, or we would die. We are not yet fit for heaven, where we will one day see Him face to face. Even this revelation was tempered somewhat for the disciples. But John goes on to say in that verse that God, the one and only, and who is that? Well, that's Jesus He is saying that Jesus is God, the one and only, the unique Son of God, has made Him known. That if we want to know what God the Father is like, then we look to Jesus. And what we see in Jesus are the same attributes, the same character qualities that we would see in God the Father. And they beheld His glory. They saw a glory of one who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And Matthew tells us that on that mountaintop there also appeared with them Moses and Elijah. Why those two? Well, these two are kind of like the uh, faces that you would find on Mount Rushmore. You know, if you were going to look at the Mount Rushmore of Judaism, you'd probably have like Abraham there who's like Washington. And you'd have Moses, maybe he's like Lincoln. And you'd have uh, Elijah there who's like Jefferson. And I'm not sure who Teddy Roosevelt would be, if that would be Noah or Daniel or one of the other great figures in Old Testament history. But these men were great men whom God used in a very significant way. Moses was the lawgiver the one who God had given the Ten Commandments to and who brought them to the people. Elijah was the head of the prophets at that period in history. He was one of the greatest of the prophets. Both of them had seen God's glory on the mountaintop. Moses met with God on Mount Sinai. Elijah had seen the glimpse of God's glory on Mount Horeb. And now here these two men appear with Jesus and they once again are seeing the glory of God. Only this time it's Jesus that they're meeting with on the mountaintop. That's awesome. I mean, when you just ponder that, when you just think about what statement is being made here, it is a strong statement again of Jesus' deity. They are standing in the presence of God, and it is Jesus that they are seeing. 
Both of these men, too, were taken up to heaven in unusual ways, Moses on Mount Nebo and Elijah in the chariots of fire. Moses and Elijah were great, but Jesus is greater still, and they have come to serve him. We'll read in Luke's Gospel that they came to talk to Jesus about his coming departure. They were there to strengthen him and meet with him prior to his going to Jerusalem and his death on the cross. But there is no question about who is the greatest in their midst. Which leads to the second point that this passage is trying to make. That Jesus is Lord. He is Lord of all. And this story emphasizes His preeminence over every other person, over every other thing in our life. And sadly, in this account, what we're going to see is that Peter missed it. And he needed to be corrected here. There was more to learn about Jesus. In verse 4, it said, Peter said to Jesus, when he saw this happening, he said, Lord, it's good for us to be here. And if you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, there's a humorous footnote that's added in Mark's Gospel. Remember, the Gospel of Mark, we believe, is really Peter's Gospel. Mark got his stories from Peter, and so sometimes in Mark's Gospel, you'll hear and see these things that are about Peter that are told from a very personal point of view. And uh, this one's kind of funny, because when Peter must have told Mark at some point about when this happened, Peter didn't know what to say. He was so afraid. <laughs> he just didn't know what to say. And he spoke without thinking. And uh, I can imagine Peter sitting around a campfire one night telling him that story and going, I mean, it was just incredible. We saw Jesus change. And I was like, Abba, Abba, I don't, I don't know what to say. And so he, he comes up thinking, well, maybe we ought to just, we'll put up three tents here, Lord, and one for each of you. And then we'll, we'll settle down here. And wouldn't that be great? But he makes this statement as though all of them were equal and we're supposed to sort of build these three shelters or tabernacles for each one. Kind of like a shrine for each, perhaps. I mean, wouldn't that be great? You know, think about that as a tourist attraction, you know. Wouldn't that be great? You know, and people could come and visit that and be there. There's only one problem with that. And that is that there's only one Lord. There's only one Lord. There's not three people here that we are to honor and revere. There's one. There's one. And the Scripture says that while he was still speaking, I mean, he's still, he's still going on and it's time to say, Peter, shut up and listen. Just listen. And a cloud enveloped them, the Shekinah glory, the glory of God, and God the Father spoke. And he said, this is my Son. This is my Son, whom I love, and with Him I am well pleased. It is the same thing that God the Father would say at Jesus' baptism earlier in Matthew 3.17. Jesus was affirmed by the Father at His baptism. God said the same thing. But now He adds one important addition. He adds the command, listen to Him. Listen to Him. How many of our problems would be solved if we would do that one thing? If we would listen to Jesus. 
To listen includes obedience. How many of our fears would vanish if we would do that one thing? If we would listen to Jesus, listen to His Word and act on it in our life? How many doubts would pass away? How many worries or anxious thoughts could be gone if we would listen to Jesus? When they heard the voice of God, they fell on their faces in terror. But there is this beautiful picture here of Jesus who comes to them. They're face down on the ground. They are terrified at hearing the voice of God. And Jesus comes to them and touches them and says, Get up. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. What a dramatic contrast. Jesus is God. His glory is beyond our words to express. They have seen His glory. He is powerful. He is holy. He is majestic. He is awesome. And yet He comes with this tenderness, this gentleness. He is loving and kind. And He asks them to get up. And He tells them, don't be afraid. And when they look up, they see only Jesus. Everyone else is gone. Jesus stands alone. There is no one like Him. Not Moses, not Elijah, not Buddha, not Mohammed, not Confucius, not Gandhi, not the kings of this earth or the princes, not presidents or prime ministers. There is no one who is like Him. Listen to Him. Napoleon once said of Jesus that I know men And I can tell you that Jesus Christ is not a man. Superficial minds may see a resemblance between Christ and the founders of other religions or empires, but that resemblance does not exist. There is between Christianity and whatever other religion the distance of infinity. Everything in Christ astonishes me. His spirit overawes me and His will confounds me. Between Him and whoever else is in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. He is truly a being by Himself. Neither history, nor humanity, nor the ages, nor nature can offer me anything with which I am able to compare it or explain it. Here, everything is extraordinary. Listen to Him. And thirdly, the Scripture would teach us that Jesus is the Savior. He is the Messiah. And we see that in verses 9 to 13. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Now, can you imagine that? How hard would that have been? You have just been on the mountaintop with Jesus. You have just seen His glory You know, as He is transfigured before them, and this has been this incredible, awesome experience, and you're ready to tell at least the other disciples, aren't you? I mean, you want to tell them what you just saw, what happened up there? Especially when they ask you, okay, guys, what happened? What was going on? I mean, if this were today in our setting... This would probably already have been on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. I mean, the guys would have had their cameras out, you know, and taken pictures of this, or they would have been texting, or they would have been, you know, saying, just saw Jesus transfigured, awesome. You know, Moses and Elijah hold summit with Jesus. 
pictures to follow, whatever. I mean, that's kind of the world we live in, and so maybe it was good that this took place back then. They wanted to tell, but they couldn't. Nada. Nothing. Not a word until the Son of Man had been raised from the dead. There it is again. This statement about being raised from the dead. This statement about going to Jerusalem and something awful is going to happen there. The Son of God is going to be turned over to wicked men who will put Him to death. But He's going to rise again? Remember how they didn't get it? Jesus kept saying it. They just, it just did not fit for them. And it would not be until after these events had happened that they would fully understand what Jesus was talking about. But it was there, it was there all along in the statements that were being made. Jesus spoke of His suffering. And even on the mountain, God Himself had spoken about these two ideas of a Messiah who would die for the sins of the people. When God the Father made this statement about Jesus, this is my Son whom I love, they were quotes from two passages of Scripture. The statement, this is my Son, is actually a quote from Psalm 2, verse 7. And Psalm 2 is a psalm about the coronation of the King, about God's Son, the Messiah. It was a psalm that was read at the coronation of the Davidic kings. as They were the little kings who followed in the line of this Messianic King, this King who was to come, whose kingdom would never end. And so God the Father is saying of Jesus, this is My Son, the Messiah, the Anointed One. And when he said, with whom I am well pleased, that was a quote from Isaiah 42, verse 1. A passage that speaks about the suffering servant, this servant who would do the Father's will. This servant who would bring justice to the nations. This servant whom Isaiah 52 and 53 tells us would die for the people. He would bear the iniquity of us all and by his wounds we would be healed. Both ideas. A king who would die. A Messiah who would suffer for his people. Those ideas were present there. But it wouldn't be until after the cross that they would fully understand. Coming down the mountain, they asked Jesus a question about Elijah. They had just seen Elijah and they were wondering about what the Scripture said. And they said, why did the teacher say that Elijah must come first? It was a prophecy that comes in the last book of the Old Testament in Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6, that Elijah would come and he would turn the hearts of fathers to their children and children to their fathers, or God would come and smite the land in judgment. And Jesus said, Elijah has come, and they did not recognize him. Elijah has come already. And then they understood that he was talking about John the Baptist. And in the same way that they had treated John the Baptist harshly and put him to death, so too the Son of Man would suffer at their hands. And the disciples understood what he was saying. John the Baptist wasn't Elijah reincarnated. John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah. And he fulfilled this prophecy of Scripture. 
And when we come to the Scriptures again, what God is saying here is something very powerful about His Son. It is so simple that a child can understand it, and yet it is so profound that Jesus stands alone. There is no one like Him. He is God. He is Lord. He is Savior. There is no one No other leader, no other founder of a religion, no other person whom the world may follow who is like Jesus. And then God adds that statement, listen to Him. Listen to Him. Who He is adds weight to what He says. Because He is the Son of God, our Savior, He is the one that we should listen and follow. And what I'd ask you this morning, just by way of application, maybe this application of the whole series, is what is He saying to you? Are there fears in your life that you've been letting hold you back from following Him fully? Lay Him aside. Confess Him to Jesus and follow Him. Where do you need to listen and obey what He is asking you to do? What is it that He wants you to do with your life? What is it that He wants you to do in terms of a a next step in your spiritual growth? Where do you need to trust Him more and fear less? That's what this series has been about. And I hope that you have found it helpful and an encouragement to you. Because there are always things that we need to deal with in our life so that we might grow in our relationship with Him. Let's pray. Father, when I think of the incredible experiences that the disciples had, I stand amazed at that. But no less so, when we come to know Christ, we have seen You work in our life. We have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of Your beloved Son. Our hopes, our dreams, our desires have been changed by Christ. And we stand before You forgiven and free. We stand with a future in front of us that can be used for Your honor and glory. And so today, Father, I pray that we would surrender our fears, that we would put aside any struggles with sin that are holding us back, and that we would yield ourselves completely to You, to Your service. And Father, would You be pleased to use us in that way? Help us to grow in understanding of who You are, Your will for our life. Help us to follow You fully. In Jesus' name, Amen.